Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Philemon. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. It was 1993 in Germany, and one of the most well-respected theologians of our day was giving a paper on forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a lecture entitled, Embrace the Other, and it was all about how we as sinners can embrace people that we have conflicts with in our lives because of the embrace that we have received from Christ, his grace, his mercy, and the embrace of the gospel and of, of truth and and redemption. And after he was done giving this paper, it was at the University of Tübingen in Germany. It's, again, this is one of the most uh, famous and the most significant theologians of our day. Another theologian stood up and asked him a question. His name was Jürgen Moltmann. And he said this, great paper, loved what you said, but can you embrace the Chetnik? What's interesting about that question and what's uh, significant and weighty about it is what was happening in Europe in the early 1990s. I just vaguely remember this as a kid and my, my parents watching the news and hearing about the war in Bosnia. From about 1991, 92, for three years and eight months, the war in, Bo- in Bosnia was um, raging. It was primarily three people groups after the breakup of Yugoslavia, Serbia, you had Croatia, and you had the Bosniaks themselves. And the civil war that ensued was the ugliest, the bloodiest war that Europe had experienced ever since World War II. At the end of it, over 100,000 people died. 2.2 million were relocated, um, forced out of their homes, had to resettle and find immigration somewhere else. It ended in Dayton, Ohio, of all places, where a peace agreement was made and finalized in Paris, Paris, France. A Chetnik is a Serbian guerrilla warfare group. They were very well known for ethnic cleansing, um, almost a a Holocaust genocide approach, and something that I, I won't give you much details on, but it's called mass raping of women. When that question was asked to Miroslav Volf, he responded in a way that made him think deeply and ponder the significance. Can he embrace the people who are currently herding millions of people into concentration camps? Can he embrace those who are raising cities to the ground? Can he embrace his enemies as a Croatian Protestant, watching the things that were happening to his people and to his ethnic group? The answer he had to think long about led him to write a book. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. It's one of the, uh, the best books that I have on my shelf on forgiveness, reconciliation, and embracing the other. And he answered this way. He said, no, I cannot embrace the Chetnik. But I think as a follower of Christ, I should. This morning we're going to finish a... Uh, a two-part sermon series on conflict resolution and and really reconciliation through this tiny, tiny book of Philemon. What we said last week was Philemon is one of these books in the New Testament that it was probably written around the same time as the book of Colossians to the churches in Colossae. 
Philemon had a church in his house that met that was right there in that area. And it's all about Colossians in action. Philemon in a, in a word is reconciliation. It's all about how we deal with conflict resolution. And even though the gospel is not mentioned one time, the resurrection is not even alluded to in this book, reconciliation is central. It's the greatest theme. It's Paul's urging and appealing of Philemon to make sure his relationships are intact. Now, typically, when we think of uh, reconciliation, we think of it in terms of accounting. All the accountants and bankers in the room are perking their ears up. We reconcile bank accounts. We recon reconcile statements, accounting statements. What that means is we ensure that the money leaving an account matches up to the dollars that actually went out. The accounts are perfectly reconciled when they match, when they perfectly match one another. It's really interesting in the Old Testament, the idea and the concept of reconciliation is quite blurred. There's not a whole lot there. Uh, one of the main words for reconciliation in the Hebrew is kafar. It's a word that means to cover, and it's much more associated with atonement, especially in the books of Leviticus and Exodus and the first five books of the Old Testament. Outside of that, you have a, a passage where Noah spreads the pitch on the ark, on Noah's ark, where he covered it with pitch. It was reconciled with pitch, but other than that, there's not many mentions of reconciliation in the Old Testament at all. It's quite foggy. By the time you get to the New Testament, the fog on reconciliation is lifted. Reconciliation in the New Testament is almost always related to Christ. It's the work of God and the triune God in reconciling sinners to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Romans 5.10 is one of the most central passages on reconciliation. It deals with reconciliation in the past, the present, and the future. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, past tense, by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, present tense, shall we be saved, future tense, by his life? Every time the word reconciliation is used in the New Testament, God is the actor. God is the source. He is the one reconciling sinners to himself. In fact, any, the any theological textbook that you pick up is probably going to come away with a definition of reconciliation that sounds something like this. Reconciliation is the work of God through the death of Christ by which sinful man is brought to spiritual fellowship and harmony with God. Perhaps no theological topic is more significant to dive into when it comes to conflict and resolution in our relationships than this topic of reconciliation. It's something that we need to explore and talk about frequently. Uh, look down at your text in Philemon. I'm gonna start in verse 10. We're not gonna read through the whole thing this morning, but most of the book. Philemon, verse 10, and I'll read through the end here. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be made by my compulsion, but by your own accord. 
For this is perhaps why he had parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Here's your accounting. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own owing of me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A couple points on reconciliation. What do we as Christians do? How do we, how do we respond when people wrong us? What's the best way to approach situations, relational conflicts, where we have been wronged by another believer or even just another, another person in general? First point. Refuse the categories of victim and oppression. Refuse to use categories of victim and oppression. There's many things we don't know about this small book in Philemon. Uh, so much is, is left kind of scholars guessing at what the exact historical context was. Uh, we don't know exactly what Onesimus did to wrong Philemon. We don't know how much Philemon was harboring any kind of anger or bitterness or, or even conflict in his heart. But there is some stuff that we do know on this book that we can take at surface level. At some point in time, Philemon and Onesimus had some kind of relationship. Um, Onesimus might have been a slave. Philemon might have been the master of Onesimus. Maybe they were business partners. Maybe they were just close friends that knew each other because of their acquaintances and where they were living. We don't really know. What we do know is that Philemon feels wronged in some way by some kind of mistreatment from Onesimus. And as a result, there's a conflict between conflict between them. Paul is urging and appealing Philemon now to reconcile with him, to forgive him, to accept him, to receive him in the Lord. He's trusted Christ. He's a believer now. And Paul really appeals to his heart in this situation for that relationship to be reconciled. Actually, there are many things that Paul is asking of Philemon in this book. Look down at your text, verse 14. Paul wants Philemon to act on his own accord. He asks him to do this out of his own motivation, in his own love, not in compulsion, not just because Paul says to do it. In verse 15, Paul suggests that Philemon should take him back as a brother, accept him as a brother in Christ. Verse 17, Paul asks him to receive or welcome Onesimus. Verse 18 says to take any debt payment from Paul instead of from him. Verse 20 says, Paul asks him to refresh his heart. Paul asks and alludes to all of these things in Philemon and requests it of him. But there is one thing that he will not entertain, and if our culture could see this, if we could understand this with all the turmoil and conflict that we are experiencing in the States right now, it would be amazing. 
Have you noticed the obsession today to label somebody as the victim in a situation? Have you noticed a constant narrative and a refrain, this person is being oppressed, this group has been victimized, this group of people needs to be liberated from the oppressors, this social group is in a social dungeon and the chains must be shattered for them to be freed. This person is a slave and the slave must become the master of his life, of his fate, of his destiny. Miroslav Volf suggests that this type of narrative might be one of the most unproductive narratives when it comes to conflict resolution, in particular between Christians, but in general between all people and all groups. Here's what he says. If the plot is written around the schema of oppressed victims and oppressors, perpetrators, each party will find good reasons for claiming the higher moral ground of a victim. Each will perceive itself as oppressed by the other. Each will see themselves as engaged in the struggle for liberation. The second that you and I use categories of oppression and victimization, those in the conflict are putting on combat gear, not dinner dresses and suits to a dinner party. These are categories and these are words that we use for fighting, not for reconciling, not for negotiating at the table, All of us must realize that conflicts are messy. Some conflicts are extremely messy. It's not always super simple to separate the the unaltered and the pure good in a situation and that which is manifest evil on the other hand. Sometimes those two groups overlap each other and it's really difficult to tell. After all, nobody can see the hearts of men and women except for God. Another problem with these categories is that the longer the conflict ensues, the more both parties get sucked into the vortex of self-victimization. And let me just give a a disclaimer as we talk about this this stuff. I'm not saying to get rid of the categories of of victimization and oppression altogether 100%. What I am saying is that they are beset with problems when it comes to hashing out conflicts and dealing and getting to resolutions. We are always gonna have battered women, uh, exploited slaves in a fallen and a broken world. There are always going to be victims, there are always going to be the oppressed. But to use that as our go-to narrative and to anchor down it as freedom as the ultimate example I think is a category mistake and something that hinders reconciliation in the body of Christ. Each side in a conflict believes in the rightness of their own cause, right? I'm right, they're wrong, it's as simple as that. It's either me or Mark Nunley. One of us is gonna have to go one way or the other, and that's it. There is no middle ground. What happens when those armed with their belief, what happens when one side wins? Usually the stronger side. How will the liberated now live with the oppressor. Usually the answer is to liberate the oppressors, right? Don't you realize that when the oppressed become liberators, it is often they that need to change on the backside? Anybody seen Mockingjay anytime recently? Go back and watch the end or read the end of the book. I'm not trying to kick up a dust storm, I'm just trying to point out that liberators are often known for not taking off their soldiers' uniforms. There's a famous quote Next slide, guys, my clicker stopped working here. Persecutors are often recruited among martyrs who have not quite been beheaded yet. 
I think that's true. How does Paul appeal to Philemon here? If he doesn't play the victim card, if he doesn't play the oppressed card, what card is he actually playing? Look at verse 9, just before we started reading. Yet for, does your text say love's sake? The Apostle Paul is refusing to play the victim or the oppressed card, and he is adamantly playing the love in the body of Christ card. He's arguing for reconciliation on the basis, the motivation for no other reason other than loving one another in the body of Christ. Love, not freedom, is ultimate. Love, not freedom, is ultimate. Next slide. Jürgen Moltmann put it this way. The ultimate goal of human beings is not the kingdom of freedom. Rather, the kingdom of freedom is a process toward the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of love. As Christians and as believers, right here, this could, might be the most important time to grasp this through the text of Scripture. We must refuse the labels of victim and oppression. We must recognize the need for God's love instead. We must operate, be motivated, and encouraged out of the foundation of love more than anything else if reconciliation is going to happen. Number two, is this a little heavy? I feel like it's a little heavy this morning. Anybody got a good joke or something? Number two, avoid God's chair. I was trying to figure out how do, I, how do I lighten this up a little bit. Avoid God's chair. If we're going to be people that reconcile in the body of Christ, one of the things that all of us must do is stay out of God's throne and refuse to take that in our own hearts. Leave God's chair to God. We have our own chairs as those in submission and obedience to his authority. Most people assume they can be their own moral authority when they take God's chair. One way that you can do it is when you assume you can be your own moral authority. This is the heartbeat of social media today. It's not right to force the vaccine on somebody. It's not right that you don't get the vaccine, right? We're gonna become a moral authority on what everybody should and shouldn't do regardless. You realize at the foundation of every issue, every problem, every problem you'll ever face, at the foundation of it is somebody wanting to be in the place of God. It's somebody wanting to have the superior upper hand, telling themselves what they want to do over themselves, but also other people as well. Whenever you decide what is right and wrong for you, rather than relying on God's word, you have inevitably taken God's chair. You have taken the place of God. This is the oldest sin in the book. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 16, Genesis 2 and 3, the fall of man. In the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Well, that sounds really good. And so I'm going to take it. Look at verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a little while. Don't you see the providence of God in this situation? Philemon didn't like that Onesimus was gone. There was a conflict between them. If he had it his way, he would take up God's chair. He would handle it the way that he wanted to handle it. Paul comes in and says, look, the providence of God might be behind this. You're not in God's chair. You don't know why this has happened. I can tell you this, this, uh, this person is a believer now. He's in the body of Christ. That would have never happened if he wouldn't have been imprisoned. 
Or there's another way we can take God's chair. Tim Keller points this out. He says, the second way you can take God's chair is when you look to people to give to you what only God can give. You are proverbially taking the throne of God when you look to people to give to you what only God can give. The young business professional sets out to be a a multi-million dollar owner of a company. The company goes under because the CEO did something really awful. All of a sudden, it's his fault. I'm gonna blame all my problems on people, on this situation, on that person, and I'm gonna get really angry and upset because it didn't work out how I wanted it to work out. Or a young pastor wants to be a, a pastor of a massive church. So he goes up to the northeast, northwest, to Seattle, and he joins a church called Mars Hill, where Mark Driscoll is the biggest pastor that had the most overnight success ever. Turns out that he has a conflict, the church splits, and now 30 pastors don't have a job. All of a sudden, we're blaming Mark, Mark Driscoll for everything. At the core of all that kind of thinking is a faulty assumption that people are the answer to your deepest problems, that people are the solution to the things that they are not the solution to. Let's, let's assume that Onesimus was Philemon's slave. What happened if he would have run away? I've lost all those hours of labor that I could have had from you. You are my possession. I paid for you. Now all that money is gone. I've got to go out and I've got to look for another slave to do the things that you were supposed to be doing the whole time. It's caused me all this pain and all this heartache, all because it's your fault. Onesimus wronged me. Somebody needs to pay for this. Look at verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, in any way, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Paul urges Philemon with one of the the deepest theological realities of the gospel, one of the richest truths and the central features of the death and the resurrection of Christ was that Christ died in our place. He died for us. He was the payment to God that we should have been. He was the just for the unjust. God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin on our behalf, sinners, me, Jared, Troy, Robert, whoever, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How do we work reconciliation to those who, round, who, who wrong us? We resist being our own moral authority. We don't look to people to give to us what only God can give to us. A couple points as we wrap it up. Final reconciliation will only be accomplished by God. Final reconciliation will only be accomplished by God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can reconcile our conflicts with one another. But final reconciliation will only be realized at the second coming of Christ. Until that time, we're going to have conflicts. Assume they're going to be regular and often in your life. Become good at dealing with them, confronting them, not bypassing them, not avoiding them. Miroslav Volf says here, the crucial question, therefore, is not how to accomplish final reconciliation. That's a messianic problem. The messianic problem ought not to be taken out of God's hands. The only thing worse than the failure of some modern grand narratives of emancipation would have been their success. 
Let me read that again. The crucial question, therefore, is not how to accomplish the final reconciliation. That messianic problem ought not to be taken out of God's hands. The only thing worse than the failure of some modern grand narratives of emancipation would have been their success. God the Father is the only one who can reconcile us without having evil motives in some way in his heart. Does that make sense to you? We human beings are frail and imperfect people. Our motives are not pure. Even though saved by the blood of Christ, we struggle with this. Forgiveness is often a long journey for people. It's a decision, but it's a journey that follows. Many of us don't make that journey without ill will toward another person. God does. He's the only one that can. He's the only one that can administer perfect and divine justice. Everything else is a futile attempt toward those things. We must engage in the struggle against oppression, but we must openly renounce attempts at final reconciliation. Otherwise, the result is just perpetuating the oppression, just in a different way or a different person. There's a common thread of the injustice role reversal, a person fighting injustice unjustly often reverses to the other course, and it's a a ruthless cycle. When Jesus came to the earth, he was thrown into massive political oppression. Y'all realize that the Jewish people were uh, heavily oppressed almost their, their entire existence. They've been oppressed people. Um, Egypt, just start there. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrians before that, take the northern Israelites away, their families. After the Babylonians came the, uh, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and finally the Romans by the time that Jesus came on the scene. The Romans conquered the Jews. They mistreated them. They oppressed them. What's so radical about Jesus, though, is it's not his political leadership and his ability to liberate the poor that's so amazing. When Jesus came to the, to the earth, he was for the poor. He battled for the oppressed. And that's exactly what we would expect from any half-witted politician Bear with me here. To be a political leader, you need some kind of social power and platform. To have a platform, you need a following. To gain that following, you'd have to take up the cause of the poor and the needy. But Jesus was so much more than a political leader. The gospel was so much more radical than simply just that. Jesus doesn't take up the cause of the victim without telling the victim to repent. Jesus doesn't take up the cause of the poor, of the socially outcast, without telling the poor and the socially outcast to repent. They still have a heart issue that they need to deal with. Jesus gave more hope to the marginalized than any person in history, and he still required them to change. Because sin is a heart issue that is universal amongst humanity and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter if you're socially elite or socially marginalized. Everybody needs a heart that is transformed by the truth of the gospel. Jesus preached repentance to the oppressed and the marginalized. That's what makes his message so radical. 
Unrepentant victims today far too often become the oppressors of tomorrow because they don't see the need to repent. This is, these are hard things to grasp, but I think this is what made Jesus' ministry a piece of it that makes it so radical for the kingdom of God. Reconciliation will only succeed when both parties are, willingly to complete, are willing to completely receive the other. Reconciliation will only be achieved when both parties willingly and completely receive the other. Look down at verse 17. This is the last verse. If you consider me your partner, Paul says to Philemon, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. The NET says, accept him as you would accept me. NIV says, welcome him as you would welcome me. The only other place that Paul uses this word in this way is Romans 15, verse seven. And there was a great conflict at the end of Romans. What are these Jewish people gonna do with all these Gentiles, this other ethnicity, this other nationality that's coming into this Jewish faith? How are we gonna treat these outside Gentile dogs that are coming into our Jewish faith? Paul says this, Romans 15, seven, accept one another in love. Receive one another in love. Forgive one another in love. Reconcile with one another in love. Restore one another. You guys catch, catch what I'm saying here? Welcoming, receiving, restoring is total and unhindered forgiveness. That doesn't recall the past as a, as a weapon and ammunition against a person, but chooses to forget the past and restore the person and reconcile. All of you are probably thinking about conflicts that you have in your life right now because I'm pretty confident all of us have some. If not, just... It'll be just time before that occurs. Maybe you got a conflict with me this morning. I don't know. All of you guys are thinking about relationships. Most of us think, who's right, who's wrong, who needs to apologize first? Paul says, lay that down. Don't think that way. Most of us think, who's the victim, who's the oppressor? Who's the strong, who's the weak? Who's the right who's been wronged. Lay that down for the sake of love. Receive that person. Whether they change their mind and their heart or not is not up to us. It's not up to you. Our responsibility is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to forgive them in love, to love them whether they change or not. Because that's what God called us to do through the gospel. Y'all realize at the cross of Jesus Christ, he shed his love for us that while we were yet enemies, Christ loved us. He didn't wait for us to change our hearts. He didn't wait for us to turn our minds to God and to forsake the ways that we were sinning against him. He simply loved us and he died for us on the cross. He asks us to reconcile with one another in in the same light, to be a model of the reconciliation that you received from Christ. Uh, let's pray, and, and I'm going to ask uh, Sam to come make his way on up here as we 
we finish up today. Father in heaven, uh, give us grace, wisdom, and the mercy that we all need to deal with conflicts and resolutions for your glory. Not only in the body of Christ, but also in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, those who we um, have relationships with. Give us the courage, give us the ability to forgive, to not hang on to bitterness, anger, resentment, but to truly love one another. Help us to avoid taking God's chair. Help us to abandon the labels of victim and oppressed and oppressors and think instead about the love of God that leads to freedom in Christ. For it's there that those great themes and the working of the Holy Spirit in our life will be that much more felt and exhibited in our relationships. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you loved us even while our hearts were turned against you. Thank you for the extent that you went to to forgive us of our sins before any of us had an inclination to turn to you. God, we thank you so much for the grace and mercy and the forgiveness that we've received from you. Help us to show that grace, mercy, and forgiveness to others in our life as well. We ask all of this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.